What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, uh, Kenneth Anderson, and today it is November 12th of 2014. Our guest is Marcus Bakuber. Uh, he's done a study about uh, medical marijuana and opioid overdose. We're going to talk about that in a minute. First, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest is with us right now. Marcus, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you on the show. I saw your article a little while back. I know uh, it was uh, mentioned in the New York Times. It was uh, quite prominent all over the place. Um, so tell us a little bit, what is this study about? Sure. So um, uh, I'm a primary care doctor in practice, and I see a lot of patients with um, chronic pain. And so we got interested in the issue of um, medical marijuana as a treatment for chronic pain and whether uh, people were... Um, potentially substituting um, prescription opioid painkillers for medical marijuana. So we saw this in practice that people would describe um, a history of using um, painkillers that didn't work for them, and so they used uh, medical marijuana, which, you know, alleviated their symptoms. Um, And so in talking with some colleagues, we wondered how this might play out on a larger scale. And so um, we uh, looked at Basically, we looked at overdoses, overdose deaths um, in states with medical marijuana laws and states without laws from 1999 to 2010. Mm-hmm. So what were you expecting? Did you think that uh, the marijuana might be a gateway drug and increase uh, deaths, or do you think it might be a substitute and reduce them, or were you not certain? Or What was your initial attitude when going into this? Yeah, that's a, that's a, really, um, that's a really interesting question because, you know, people have – um, very different attitudes about uh, marijuana and its relationship with other drugs. So many people believe that marijuana is um, a gateway or a stepping stone. So either uh, the chemicals in marijuana themselves change brain chemistry, which leads to the use of other drugs, or marijuana use can lead, you know, is an entree to the world of drug use. And so that leads to other drugs. And some people um, believe that that, it, you know, has been shown in some studies, but it's an unreliable finding, and so they believe that marijuana is not at all linked um, or not a cause of the use of other drugs. And so we really didn't know, um, you know, going into the study, we didn't know which direction um, we uh, we might find uh, as far as an association. Mm-hmm. And what sort of uh, association did you find? So we found, um, looking at uh, overdose deaths from 1999 to 2010, we found that um, states with medical marijuana laws had about a 25% lower rate of overdose deaths than would be expected based on years prior to the law and trends in states that didn't have a law. 
Um, were you able to track the number of opioid prescriptions in those states? Did you see a difference in the in that number? Or yeah, that's a that's a really great point. So um, we we actually didn't look at prescription data, and those data are harder to get. Um, and we're starting to look at that now. We don't I don't have any unfortunately I don't have any preliminary results um, to share with you. But um, that's a you know one of the main um, limitations of our study is that we found an association between medical marijuana laws and lower rates of overdose death, but we're not exactly able to pinpoint the reason behind it. You know, So it could be that there are fewer prescriptions for opioid painkillers, um, or it could be that people who are misusing or abusing opioids, there's fewer of those people, um, or it could be some, uh, you know, a third uh, or unrelated factor, such as something going on in the state at the same time that a medical marijuana law was passed. Oh, and I wanted to ask you, what journal were you published in? Um, this was published in the uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, their internal medicine uh, journal. Yeah, I think that's uh, important for people to know. This is this is a serious, heavy-duty study if it gets published in JAMA. <laughs> So yeah. it's definitely uh, something worth paying attention to. And, you know, as I said, it was mentioned in a New York Times article, too. It's been out there all over the place. So it's it's a serious study. Um, now, has there been any research on uh, the effectiveness of cannabis as a painkiller? So my, you know, my area um, of research uh, is more around prescription painkillers and um, heroin use. So I'm less familiar with the uh, marijuana literature, but in in this, you know, re, you know, preparing this study, I reviewed a lot of the literature on marijuana and chronic pain, and there are um, studies, mostly from Europe, um, that show that cannabis or some part of cannabis does, um, for some people at least, reduce uh, or provide pain relief um, for certain types of pain, such as nerve pain. Um, there's not the kind of large-scale studies that we see with other medications. Um, we don't have that mm-hmm. kind of, that level of information available with marijuana, but uh, or with cannabis. Uh, but there there are um, small studies. There are many small studies that support the um, support that uh, cannabis does alleviate pain, some types of pain for some people. Now let's talk a little bit about opioids and their use as painkillers, particularly. You know, are they good for all types of pain? Are they good for long-term chronic pain as well as short-term acute pain? So this is a very, um, you know, interesting kind of historical question. In our, uh, as a medical field, our perception of the safety of opioid painkillers has really changed over the last 20 years. So we've known for, I mean, I mean, you know, the use of opioids dates back. Uh, to early, very early recorded history um, in terms of pop, use of poppies uh, and the, the pain relief that they provide. Um, but recently, these medications, I mean, we've known for a very long time that they're good for acute pain, such as from surgeries or broken bones or dental work. Um, and a series of small reports came out in the 80s and 90s, which really advocated uh, the, the safety of these medicines before they weren't used much outside of acute pain um, because of concerns that long-term use would lead to addiction, uh, you know, d- physical dependence, and a lot of other problems. And so there was really a big movement kind of within the medical community in the 90s, uh, 80s, 90s, and 2000s to kind of uh, address, um, you know, to recognize chronic pain more 
and to address it, and mainly to address it using opioid pain relievers. There's a lot at this time. There's a lot of interaction between um, physicians and specialty societies like the American Academy of Pain Medicine um, with pharmaceutical companies uh, that were developing and marketing these medicines at the same time. So it's a very complex picture, a very complex set of people and organizations that really pushed um, or advocated for these medicines. And so, you know, throughout the past 25 years, the number of prescriptions for these medicines um, have has gone up dramatically. And really the indication, so the conditions that the medicines are prescribed for has also changed. So we went from, you know, prescribing for acute pain and to treat, um, you know, for end-of-life care and for pain related to cancer. We went from treating mostly only those to now most of the um, prescriptions uh, in this country are to treat chronic long-term pain such as uh, arthritis, back injuries, um, things like that that are not due to cancer, that are not uh, acute injuries. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I was reading something recently that said uh, this might be the wrong way to go to treat long-term pain, that it might actually sensitize people. Is there, is there yeah, any th- validity to that? Yeah. Yeah, so so there's um there's you know a couple a couple of points there. Um we've known since I, I mean I've read um you know in like these were written uh, like doctors opinions from the mid 1800s that mentioned uh that opioids in general can make people's pain worse. It's something we call opioid induced hyperalgesia, so an increase in pain sensitivity from opioids. And like I mentioned, we've we've known about this for a very long time. Um, and I think it's just in recently it's um, being recognized more. So, uh, you know, to take a step back, you know, most of the medications that we use for, quote, chronic pain, um, they've only been studied for, you know, three or four months maximum. I think three months is the longest um, that they've been studied, although uh, maybe a little bit longer. And when people are on these medications, they don't take three months and then stop, right? They take you know, the pain mm-hmm. by definition is chronic. It doesn't go away. And so they may be on these medicines for 6, 12, 18 months, years, you know, a lot, a very long time, way longer than than we have um, uh, research data from. And so, you know, we see this in practice and they see it in longer term studies that um, taking the pain medications and going up on the dose sometimes doesn't relieve the pain. In fact, people become uh, more pain sensitive. And so, when someone um sometimes when someone has a lot of pain the answer isn't to go up on their medication it's to go down on the medication and and sometimes they um will feel better with that so it's a very confu- it's a very confusing thing for people with pain for providers for you know health systems for people trying to make guidelines it's just a very confusing thing and there's not a lot of information about who the, you know who gets this how do we recognize it how do we address it um, but yeah, it's it's being kind of increasingly recognized as a more common than we once thought. Now I know there's a lot less research on cannabis, but has a similar effect ever been reported for cannabis that you know of? I'm I'm not very you know I'm not f- familiar. Um, I don't know of any study to that effect. Um, but but again, my my area of research is more around prescription painkillers and, and heroin. So um, that, that's a, um, outside of my area of expertise. Okay, fair enough. Um, so, well, we've had a lot of new uh, opioid painkillers out there, you know, the, uh, the hydrocodone, the oxycodone, all these things. Um, are, are these uh, safer than the older drugs like uh, heroin or morphine? Um, 
is the, what are, what are some of the differences between them? Yeah, um, that's a re- that's a, also a re- really interesting question. So uh, you know, a lot of these medications were um, introduced to be safer alternatives to the one before them. So heroin, I, I hope I'm not getting this confused, but heroin was actually introduced as a safer alternative to morphine. Um, mm-hmm. and, sever- and oxycodone and hydrocodone, these were introduced as safer alternatives to the ones before. So I think that there's, in general, this thought that we're creating safer um, medicines, but it's, there's not much proof of that. So if we, we can roughly divide the medications into the long, long-acting extended release, um, and so these are ones mm-hmm. that you take once or twice a day, and then the short-acting or immediate release, and these are ones that you can take three or four or five times a day. And so... Uh, many of the new medications being produced are long-acting uh, extended release. And we know from from previous research that the risk of overdose when using these medicines is much higher. Because if you think about it, you take a, a, a pill and it doesn't kick in until many hours later. So you don't always know the true effect of that pill um, right away. And so some, some people may take an extra dose or um, it stays in the system for a long time and can um, lead to overdose. Versus the short, uh, the short acting or immediate release, there's a more immediate, um, you know, a person knows when the medication uh, is becoming active, and and there, it's it's a little easier to uh, adjust the dose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, are there studies about dependence? Are people less likely to become dependent on some of these newer medications than the older ones like morphine or heroin? Yeah, so that's you know one um, question that we all really want to know. And um, to my knowledge, there hasn't been very definitive studies on this. We still actually don't know just kind of in general how many people with chronic pain who are taking opioids long-term will develop addiction. We really just don't, like on a fundamental level, we don't have a great uh, answer to that question. The studies range from anywhere from uh, 5% to uh, I think 45% of people with chronic pain who take opioids long-term will end up developing um, addiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people overdose with these drugs, is it usually just they're, they're taking an opioid alone, or do, does drug mixing have an effect? Do you, is there synergistic effects of different drugs with these uh, opioids? Yeah, so it's really, it's re- you know, it's really important that, you know, that we... The opioid overdose is, an ex- is, is, you know, increasing pretty rapidly, and it's a problem in and of itself. But as you uh, mentioned, that mixing with other drugs and with alcohol also plays a big role. So um, a very, very risky combination is um, opioids with benzodiazepines, and these are anti-anxiety medicines. These are sedatives like um, Ativan, uh, Diazepam, Alprazolam, uh, that when mixed together, they have synergistic effects. So they both act in the same way to depress um, your drive to breathe and to, de- to uh, depress consciousness and lead to overdose. And if combining those two drugs with alcohol, even a very small amount, that has a, you know kind of a triple effect on your um, risk of overdose. So we think that um, poly, you know polypharmacy, so mixing two drugs and plus or minus alcohol, is a big risk factor. But we also know that some people. Uh, many people overdose on opioids alone. Mm-hmm. I saw the numbers uh, from the New York uh, New York City Department of Health that were published uh, a couple of years ago, and they said 97% of the opioid overdoses in uh, New York City involved drug mixing. 
So, yeah, yeah, it's, we we think it's very regional. So, um, some areas it's much more common to have multiple drugs uh, in the mix, and some areas it seems like a, a single drug at a high dose is um, is more predominant. But you know, it's it's very common. Okay, what what uh, what are your current research interests? Is there, are you what else are you pursuing? Are you pursuing more with the same project? Um, my current research uh, looks at the impacts of uh, local, um, state, and federal policy on prescription drug uh, misuse. So I'm right now working on a project looking at prescription drug monitoring programs and um, overdoses and adverse events related to prescription opioids. So uh, prescription drug monitoring programs are the essential registries of controlled substance prescriptions um, at the state level. Mm -hmm. And they've historically been used kind of just for law enforcement purposes um, to investigate fraudulent prescribing. But more and more, they've been reorganized and advocated for use by medical providers when, uh, you know, in routine care. So they can uh, look in these registries, see if a patient has received prescriptions from multiple different providers or prescriptions from multiple, or filled those prescriptions at multiple pharmacies. Um, and the goal of these monitoring programs is to cut down on diversion and to cut down on uh, patients seeking um, prescriptions from multiple different providers. Uh, so we're doing an evaluation to see if these programs have led to lower rates of misuse um, and lower rates of emergency department visits related to, uh, you know, complications of their use. Um, and that's an ongoing study right now. Yeah, that's a very interesting topic um, because it seems, I mean, a lot of people are saying that uh, these monitoring programs, you know, if you cut people's supply of uh, prescription opioids off it, they're going to be seeking illicit opioids and things like heroin. And do you see any evidence for that? Yeah, so um, the that's, a, I think, a very important thing for people to consider. So, um, you know, just to expand on that point a little bit, as um, the, the, you know, I think this is the theory goes, and it's also been shown in studies that when you, when you increase um, or when you clamp down on opioid, on access to opioids, prescription opioids, uh, some people will seek uh, heroin or opioids off the street because, if, when we clamp down on opioid access, we're, we're not increasing treatment capacity at all. So um, the, it moves people not into treatment. It moves them into uh, buying medications or heroin on the street, which is uh, not the direction that we want to move people. We want to move people um, into treatment or in, in eventually into recovery. Um, mm -hmm. So um, that's the main worry that, people have about uh, increasing the, the or, de or sorry, clamping down on the access to prescription opioids. So I think there's one um, interesting thing about, about our study on medical marijuana was um, just to, you know, take, take a step back and look at it more generally. We, um, we looked at the effect of prescription monitoring programs and other laws meant to increase opioid safety. We included those in our analysis of medical marijuana laws. And we found that those policies didn't really have an effect at all that we could find. Um, that really medical marijuana was the piece that uh, was associated with re um, reductions in opioid overdose mortality. So this suggests, you know, um, it's not conclusive by any means, but it suggests that maybe if we give people access to an alternative that is safer and that they might prefer, 
that people will naturally move from using prescription opioids into using a safer alternative. So maybe the approach of clamping down on access to prescription opioids um, is important, but isn't the only approach that we should take. Maybe we should also increase access to alternatives. And with chronic pain, it's not just medical marijuana. It would be um, holistic patient treatment, you know, biofeedback, uh, acupuncture, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, very rigorous physical therapy, things that are known to um, things that are no, uh, that can help patients with their pain, um, but but aren't um, a medication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know there's studies on some of these things. Uh, mindfulness is also used for pain, and uh, you know, biofeedback and things like this uh, have been shown to be quite effective. Yeah, I think I think. Um, there's been a, there's a lot of there was a lot of movement in the medical community to tr- to treat with medications that the medications were the most effective and that we need to use these opioid painkillers and I think we're now realizing that 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 was not a good idea that that was in fact counterproductive and many people um, actually prefer to use to do other things such as biofeedback um, uh, acupuncture or other more like holistic patient centered approaches but unfortunately a lot of people do not have access to those therapies because of their insurance or because they don't have the money to pay for them out of pocket or they're just not available where they live. Yeah, that's always a – insurance is always such a son of a bitch of a problem. You know, yeah. you find something that's really good for you and then you, your insurance won't pay for it. You don't have cash in the bank to pay for it. And, you know, you just can't get the treatment that works. You get the treatment that you don't want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, has cannabis – been shown effective as a painkiller for everybody, or does it not work for some people? Um, I think, you know, there's in general what we see in the research studies and then what we see in real life, and those are often similar, but sometimes there's differences. And so in the research studies, it works for many people, but not all people. And um, and in the in real life, it works, I mean, I guess I would say the same. It works for some people, um, but not everyone. So People come to this in very in very different ways. Um, they'll sometimes hear about it from a friend, or they'll try it, and uh, they come to the decision to try it, you know try it in very different ways. I think um, I don't have numbers as far as what percent of, percentage of people it works in, um, but I think it's it's so I think we need more information in terms of like who we just really don't know who would benefit from it, what side who's going to have side effects. Um, and kind of long-term what the outcomes are going to be. So uh, do people get better? Do they have to increase their their use to feel the same amount of relief? Um, are they able to eventually wean off? You know, what what kind of, what this looks like in the long term. Mm-hmm. I know for myself personally, uh, I can't smoke cannabis. As soon as I smoke it, I get hit immediately with severe depression. It's not like the next day. It's immediately as soon as I smoke it. So it just... Man, although I'm totally in favor of legalization and medical, it's not because I want to use it personally because it's just awful for me. <laughs> yeah, people, you know, it's, it, people have very different reactions uh, to um, to the you know to smoking or ingesting uh, cannabis. Um, there's many different variables. You know, what your genetics and you know what your experience around it has been, and then what type of plant it is. And I, you know, I'm, there's just so much at play there, and, and everyone has very very different experiences. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, um, well, we talked a little bit about overdose. Um, so, in case some people don't know about this, uh, how much of a problem is opioid overdose in the United States? 
Yeah, so um, uh, they, so the new data was just released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for 2011, which is the most recent data available, and about 17,000 people died of a prescription painkiller overdose um, in that period of time. And so that's about 46 every single day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I heard uh, something about overdoses causing more deaths than traffic accidents. Yeah, so th people have different ways of talking about this. So, you know, we think of kind of drug overdose. That includes illicit drugs and prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs. And that has been increasing very dramatically. Um, and so the number of drug overdoses is higher than the number of deaths from motor, motor vehicle crashes. And then the biggest um, driver of those drug overdoses is the prescription opioid overdoses. Um, uh, yeah. And I got a couple questions. Uh, one, if if people get a dependence on a prescription opioid, um, are there things to do like a maintenance therapy, like buprenorphine or methadone? Do those work, or what's the best way to deal with that? Yeah, so it's a very it's a very um, complex issue, and it really involves uh, the individual and where they're at. So um, the mainstay of for uh, opioid for opioid dependence or opioid um, addiction is what we call medication assisted treatment so this is um, enrolling into treatment where you uh, have behavioral health so you have counselors and access to a psychologist and um, you work on the patterns of behavior around drug use and you also receive uh, medication such as buprenorphine or methadone um, which have two effects one is to um, stop withdrawal and the other is to um, blunt the effect of using, because uh, with buprenorphine and methadone, the brain's receptors are already saturated with the opioid. So using heroin or a prescription pill on top of that will um, you won't get either you won't get any high, or you'll get much less of a high than than you would have um, off of those medications. And our methadone and bup are these a lot safer than the others? So I think um, we know that people in treatment with buprenorphine or methadone, their uh, rates, we, we know that this treatment reduces the rates of overdose and reduces the rates of overdose death pretty dramatically. Um, and so it's a combination of the medication and being in counseling and other, uh, and the behavioral forms of treatment that uh, leads to those reductions. Mm -hmm. And what about methadone as a pain reliever? It's been much more popular recently than it used to be. It, what do you think of that? Yeah, it was advocated as a um, uh, long-acting pain reliever. So um, it was prescribed for people with pain to take two or three times a day. Um, and it has very interesting um, metabolism by the body, and it differs. So different people metabolize it differently. And the way that uh, it accumulates in the body is very different than other opioids. And so w when people, um, w you know, with pain started methadone, they had very different responses to it. And if they went up on, and if their providers went up on the dose of methadone, they also had very different responses. So it was a little unpredictable in that way. And from the research, we, we think that a, a large number of overdoses uh, were related to use of methadone as a pain reliever. Um, because of its unpredictable kind of dosing and effects uh, on the individuals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think I'm starting to run out of questions, so I would 
going to open it up to you if there's uh, any particular things that you would like to share with our audience. No, I, I just thank you for having me on the show. I, I, I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's been great to have you on the show, and we will be looking forward to your upcoming research on these diversion programs and to see how they work and if they're effective or what's up with all of those. All right, thank you very much. Well, thank you for being our guest. So, everybody, we'll see you next week with another show. Uh, see you then. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.